Syzygy, episode 28. All exoplanets are exciting. Yes, welcome back for another edition of the Syzygy podcast. For the first one for 2019, there's been a bit of a break. We had a bit of a break over the the Christmas New Year period. Some of you who listened to the last episode might remember that I was sitting alone in the dark and cold of Emily's office because Emily was overseas down in New Zealand, just gallivanting around climbing mountains and enjoying the warmth. But she's back. She's back in the Northern Hemisphere winter. Emily, welcome back. Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, remember that I was also... Also sitting alone in the in the dark during that time. Well, yeah, but I mean that was that was voluntary. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really have a choice. I, I could have escaped the winter, but I couldn't really. So you were down in New Zealand. How'd it go? It was brilliant, brilliant trip. Um, unfortunately, the weather was not so fabulous for my observing, mm. and it didn't actually get any better since we recorded. But so it conspired against you a bit. But did you manage did. to get some decent observing? Observing. Uh, we managed to work on another project as well, uh, getting another instrument commissioned onto the telescope, and that. That was very successful. So some good things came out of it. Cool. And at the very least, you got to hang around in a very beautiful part of the world. I saw a lot of your photographs on Facebook. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Yes, of, yep. you know, crystal blue glacial lakes and mountain tops and... White sandy beaches. Yeah, yeah. You're looking a bit tanned, actually. <laughs> yeah, I have yep. to say, you've got some colour that isn't sort of pasty white northern winter whiteness. Well, trust me, it will not last here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll fade pretty quickly. Well, yes, indeed. Welcome back for 2019. It's going to be a big year in astronomy. And in fact, we've already kicked off in a big way. Just last week, there was... Now, let me get this right. It was a super wolf blood moon, which just sent the newspapers and the TV networks absolutely mad. What does it mean, Emily? Super wolf blood moon? So I'm really thinking I'm becoming an eclipse guru now. I think you probably are. You're the go-to person for, for eclipses on Sky News, at least. Other news networks are available. Um, tell us, what, what's a super wolf blood wolf moon? Man, <laughs> How many? Moon. Yeah. What? Well, if we break that all down and to look all back, all the individual words, they each individually mean something. Okay, good. So, well, some, saw some things Twitter, more than others. I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying, "What whatever happened to the days when just an eclipse was enough to get up for? Now it has to be a super blood wolfman thing. Just you know, no one's getting out of bed for anything less than a four-word description of this eclipse." Whatever happened to just eclipses are cool? I don't know. I'm still I'm still definitely on the page of eclipses are cool. Yeah, but you're an astronomer nerd. I mean, you know, yeah. you're supposed to be. That's in your job description. Yeah, getting up at 3.30 in the morning is just part of yeah. it. Yeah. Anyway, take us through it. Super. So super means that the moon was actually um, usually a bit bigger than it normally is. So the moon's orbit is not quite a circle. It comes a bit closer to the Earth at some points in its um, orbit. It's only about 7% bigger, something like that. So it's not actually easy to tell that it's bigger. Right. So if you went out on any given night and looked up at the moon, you wouldn't necessarily think, gee, that that moon looks big tonight. That's a super moon. No, although you often do go out and look when you see a full moon. It looks really huge in the sky, especially if it's very low down. And we'll talk about that another time, I think, because it's a really interesting um, optical illusion. But because um, the moon doesn't really. No, it's not. Size. It's not that big. No. You know, if you, if you take it into perspective, it's actually quite small in the sky. But anyway, let's yeah. save that for another so time. So supermoon. I mean, what it does have an effect on is, of course, things like tides, because you get more gravitational force from the moon when it's closer. It pulls up the tides a bit more. Right. So king tides are up to do with the supermoons as well. 
Um, okay, so we have Super. What was the next one? Super Wolf Blood Moon. Super Blood Wolf. Let's choose Wolf, okay. right? Wolf. Wolf has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Really? So it's a cultural thing. It just means it's a moon in January, a full moon in January. Oh, okay. So a wolf moon, oh, a, a full moon in January is a wolf moon. And I've never actually heard that before. Okay. So I think that might fall into the realms of astrology. Right. Well, we'll look that up. I'll go and see if I can find a reference to that and put it in the show notes. It's got to be on Wikipedia, surely. We'll find it. Okay, so not, it's a wolf not moon. Not quite as interesting, that one. Big deal. Sounds cool. Okay. Uh, blood moon. Blood moon is a lunar eclipse. Right. And it's a total lunar eclipse. And it's called a blood moon because it goes red. Yeah. And it goes red because... Because the blue light, so the, the sun is illuminating the surface of the moon. It makes it this, the glow and the white color because it's getting all of the colors from the, the spectrum. When it, the light passes through the atmosphere of the Earth then only the blue light is scattered around and absorbed, so only the red light is able to pass through onto the surface of the moon. Right, so when the moon's in the Earth's shadow, it doesn't go completely dark because some of that light's getting sort of bent around through the Earth's atmosphere. But the light that, that gets bent around and not scattered as much as the red light. It's the, so that's the same reason why sunsets and sunrises tend to be on yes, the red side. Yeah. is because the blue light's all getting scattered. That's why the sky's blue. Um, and the red stuff is what's left over. And uh, and so that's what you see at, at sunrise and sunset and during lunar eclipses, blood moons. Yeah. If we didn't have an atmosphere, interestingly, the moon would just vanish entirely. We wouldn't be able to see it at all. Which would also be cool, but this, I think, is more interesting. Okay, yeah. so that's the blood and then moon because it's the moon. So super wolf doesn't mean much. Blood because it's red. Moon because it's the moon. Well yeah. done. And you did a little bit of uh, a little bit of TV on this last week. You are becoming the go-to person. Um, that was a bit of fun. It was really fun, actually. Yeah. So yeah, just got to talk about that. Talk about why why the eclipse happens and so on. And then get the curveball question kind of at the end of why do people go a bit crazy in the full moon? But well, we don't have a real scientific answer for that. But at I, least we that's that's got to be psychological. Yeah, gotta be, it's a full moon. It. It's an excuse. Now I get to act up and go a bit nuts because it's a full moon and no court in the land would convict me. But the other thing, the other really cool thing about this this eclipse, okay, you know, taking aside the fact that no one gets out of bed for anything less than a super blood wolf moon these days, people who were taking photos and videos of this thing last week actually captured something really, really interesting, was that there was a, a meteorite impact on the moon during the eclipse while people were taking video of it. They captured this. Yeah, and fascinatingly, there were two, actually. Two, two within the, within the eclipse, which is really cool because this is the first time that anyone's ever actually caught this on video. Like, things hit the moon all the time. That's why the moon's covered in craters, yeah? I mean, things hit the Earth all the time, but most of them burn up in the atmosphere. Moon doesn't have any atmosphere or none to speak of. But, um, so things are bashing into it all the time, but not typically when people are watching it really, really closely because there's an eclipse going on. No, and the moon's normally way too bright for you to be able to take those kind of images. So, so when it becomes much, much dimmer during an eclipse, the contrast between the brightness of a meteorite hitting the surface of the moon is really blown up. And you can capture that with even some you know, fairly amateur equipment. Which yeah. Is, yeah, that is amazing. There's plenty of videos out there. I'll put some links in the show notes as usual. But... When I first saw the link to one of these videos and the headline was like, wow, asteroid or um, meteor impacts with moon during eclipse. I've got to go and see this. And you're watching it and there's this full red moon. And here it comes, here it comes. And they put a little circle mm. on the moon. It's like, watch this spot. And then it just goes, and this <laughs> tiny little white flash. And then they zoom in on it and put the circle around again. Watch this spot, watch this spot. And it's still one pixel of brightness. Yeah. And you realize, of course, yeah. 
the moon's really big, isn't it? <laughs> like I was expecting this huge explosion. Wow, look at that. And it was just... And so initially I was, I was really quite underwhelmed. And then my brain kicked in and went, no, think about it. You are watching the impact of a meteorite on the moon on video. Like that's real. Wow, that's yeah. so cool. And during a lunar eclipse, and which just makes eclipse. it super, super cool. Very cool. So, you know, this got all over Twitter and there's lots of videos on YouTube and so on. You should check them out. And I have it on good authority that, that the moon people at NASA and the, the, uh, the ESA and, and so on are all over this. And they're all going, well, we could pinpoint where these things are and maybe send one of our, our probes that's in orbit around the, the moon to go and just see if they can see these brand new craters that have been formed by these two impacts. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, so exciting. The solar system in action. Yeah. The tr- only trouble with this is that this is just going to make it even harder, right? That now in the future when we say there's going to be an eclipse, people are going to go, yeah, but is there going to be an explosion too? You know, are we going to, like, is it, is it going to be worth my while? If I'm going to get up at three in the morning, you got to, you know, you got to show me aliens at least, you know? Well, I do have some bad news for you on that front. Yeah. If you're in the UK, then we're not going to see another total eclipse of the moon like this until 2029. Oh, that's a long way. That's a long way. That's like another 10 years. Yeah. That's so, hardly fair. No. So, well, option one. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Be somewhere else. Well, true, actually. Yeah, good point. Where should we go then? Well, there's going to be lots of lunar eclipses. There's usually a couple every year or at least one total every year. So you just sort of meander around the globe mm. following could, the eclipses. I think we should have a Syzygy field trip. I think that'd be good. Yeah, if anyone wants to reach out to us and sponsor that, um, we would love to take your call. So just get in touch. And we should mention that there are going to be two solar eclipses in the next two years. Mm. So even like more dramatic and more astounding. Are we going to see those here? No. In the UK? No. no. So where would you have to be? So to both see of that? those, um, the tracks pass through South America. Ah. So with a lunar eclipse, basically nearly half the world can see mm-hmm. a lunar eclipse at any one time because the Earth's shadow is really big. Compared to the moon, yeah. Yeah. So, But the moon's shadow is really, really tiny. So it only falls on a very, very small part of the Earth. But yeah, there's, there's videos from the last big solar eclipse um, taken from... Would it have been from the International Space Station or from a from some kind of satellite um, showing the shadow going across the face of the Earth? And you look at it and you think, wow, it actually is really quite small, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah, so you've really yeah. got to go to the exact location for yeah. a solar eclipse. Well, I mean, I could see a mountaintop in Chile. I think that'd be fun. I think so. I think we should go. All right, look, reach out to us if you've got the cash to send Emily and me. Look, we'd settle for business class um, going to South America for that eclipse at some time within the next couple of years. Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. So, okay, moving on to the the actual news of this particular episode. Um, Long-term listeners of this show know that we are big fans of a particular small but incredibly valuable satellite known as TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Well done, you got it right. I did, I didn't even have to think about it. Uh, The the gears in my brain were going really, really quick over that one. Uh, And that launched, when did it launch? Last year? April last year. April last year, very early on in the the annals of this particular podcast. And we have a, a, a great interest in the satellite, not only because it's looking for exoplanets, which is cool, and the, the baton's been passed to it from the, from the Kepler mission to TESS as the main exoplanet hunter, but also because, sitting opposite me here in the Syzygy studios, uh, Emily's got a real interest in this because it actually overlaps quite strongly with your research area, which is, does, which is yeah. variable, variable stars. Yeah. So 
the first bunch of data, the first bunch of scientific data has been released from TESS in the last little while. Emily, do you want to talk to us a bit about some of the excitement that's come out of that? Because it's pretty cool. It is so cool. And so we got the first data drop, if you like. First data drop. Here we go. Here we go. Here's the big box full of printouts from the dot matrix printer. So NASA um, uploaded it all to the interwebs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got that on the 6th of December. So that come, it's actually public data. Anyone can go and have a look at that. It's um, through a database service called MAST which is actually where you can get lots of really interesting space telescope data if you're so inclined. Yeah, if you're really into this sort of thing, then you can go and check out the Hubble actual data, raw data. Kepler data, it's, yeah. all, it's all there. People have been doing amazing stuff, actually, just parenthetically, tangentially. People have been doing amazing stuff with the... Um, what, what was the mission that, that went to Jupiter over the, over the last while and took some Juno. amazing... It was a Juno mission. And people have taken some of the images from Juno's raw images and turn them into the most extraordinary pictures. And that's just, you know, Joe and Josephine Average around the world going, let me get my hands on that data and play with it. It's great. Anyway, this is test data. You can get your hands on it. What could they find? There's lots and lots of really interesting things. And, and NASA obviously are putting out lots of um, releases saying, oh, look, we found this thing. We need to go and look at it because it looks really interesting, but we don't really know if it's a planet. We don't need to have some confirmation of that. So what, what we put out when they look at the test data for the very first time or even as it's being collected is you get something called targets of interest, TOIs. And uh, there's a, something like 200, nearly 300 targets of interest already being put out. And uh, some of those were in the data release that came out in December. So, And some of them will come out as we see more and more data coming through. So the way that TESS works is it looks at a chunk of sky for about 27 days, so just shy of a month. And each of those chunks of sky are called sectors. Right. How big is a sector? Nearly a twelfth of a hemisphere. So if you imagine that TESS is going to look at the entire southern hemisphere, it looks sort of about one-twelfth um, at a time. Right. So that's actually quite a big chunk of sky. It's a huge chunk yeah. of sky. In comparison to, for example, the, the Kepler field of view, which was really quite small. Really, yeah. yeah. So Kepler fits within one quarter of one sector. Okay. So it's just um, a huge, huge amount. So it's about 400 times more sky, I think, than that Tess is going to look at than what Kepler Right. And so each, each one of these chunks it's looking at for 27 days, you know, on the go, non-stop. Yep. yep. And, uh, well, there's a download in the middle and then there's a download at the end. Right. So we get two bits. So that's a lot of data. It's a lot of data. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it's lot, a of lot of stars. In there. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's more than a floppy disk. Yeah, well, it's a few gigs at least. <laughs> Poor old Tess. Um, so each sector, um, they started science observations in uh, the twi- on the twenty fifth of July, um, and so, so that- before that, it was all sort of aligning cameras. And, yeah, and commissioning, things. and yeah. there were some interesting things that were found in commissioning, which we'll come back to. Um, but then we started kind of science. This is this is full on. This is go. Um, and it was on the 25th of July, so it ran for about 27 days after that, so mostly in August. And that was Sector 1, and then we had Sector 2 similarly running for uh, about 27 days in September. And those were the two sectors that were released in December. So they're doing a pretty good job because it's not really a case of satellite download data, push go onto the interwebs. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, really- not, it's not like TESS has got its own web page and it's just dumping it all on there itself. 
you know, no. here you go, have at it. I'm assuming that there's a few people who kind of trawl through that data first to just make sure that things are looking okay and getting it into the right kind of format and that sort of thing? Yeah, there are huge amounts of work that go on behind the scenes, taking that data and turning it into products that astronomers can use and that anyone can use. So, for example, you're taking an image, basically, of the of the sky. You've got one camera has four CCDs that are taking the images. And um, so you need to therefore go from an image to what we call a light curve, which means you've got to put Turn, say, find one star in your image and look at the brightness of that star changing over time. But that star can move in your image. So you've got to watch it, watch it moving around. It shouldn't move too much, but it can move. Yeah, if it's moving too around. much, it's probably not a star. I think, yeah. you know, I know enough to know that. <laughs> but this is just the satellite's stability as well. You've got to yeah. make sure that the satellite doesn't wobble too much so that the stars, and that that particular star can take up many pixels in a particular image. So you've got to extract all those pixels, combine them all in a really sensible way and put together this light curve, which is brightness um, over time for these individual targets. Yeah, because it's pointing, it's pointing out that, that astronomy these days is not about, hey, look at the pretty picture at all. It's about what's the data in that picture? What's changing over time? What are things doing? And that's not images, that's graphs, that's data, that's uh, time series, that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's a lot of processing because then you've got to repeat that process for thousands of stars mm. in every one of the image. And they're not done by hand, unfortunately, otherwise some poor person would get very frustrated. But the pro- the process, the code, the computers that are doing this need to be well-trained and we need to be very, very confident that they're doing the right thing right. with that data. So all of that work behind the scenes is dragging out of all of these images, all of this data, targets of interest that it's basically saying you can ignore all this other stuff. Here are the things to focus on because there's huge amounts of data. There are enormous number of things you could look at. These are the ones you should focus your time on. Is that right? Um, well, actually, they pull out more than just the targets of interest. So they pull out all the stars that were pre-identified before the mission even, well, before the test even launched. These are the stars that we're going to extract. They went, we're going to get data from them every two minutes, and that's going to help us build these really precise light curves. And there are, there are hundreds of thousands of stars that fall into that category Um, and then you get the full frame images so if your star didn't happen to um, be one of the special stars that was selected to have this extraction done every two minutes then uh, you can see the whole image that was taken of the sky every half an hour so you can still extract right so you can you can do it yourself you can roll your own as it were um, just because someone else has has decided that yours isn't one of the targets of interest you say well it is to me yeah so i'm gonna go and have a look at it But you won't get the data as often because we can't download all these images every two minutes. We have to only download a smaller number of stars every two minutes. that makes sense. Okay, so out of this first wadge of data, what's interesting? What have we found? So, well, TESS, um, the TESS science team and the exoplanet science team have announced three brand new confirmed exoplanets. So that's super exciting. That's cool. Just out of the very first bunch. Yeah, yeah. And um, so that, and there's some very, very interesting characteristics. I think we should talk about each of those. Okay. Um, but we're also looking at other things, of course. In fact, this is a fun fact. What do you think was the very first announcement that Tess made about something that it had seen that was quite interesting? Oh, I don't know. I mean, if, if I was in charge of Tess PR then I would be going, okay, well, we want to make a bit of a splash. So, I don't know, we've seen something that's a bit Earth-like or we've seen some kind of funky exoplanet around another star and here's why it's so cool. 
That would be my guess. So the first test announcement wasn't an exoplanet. Okay. And it wasn't a variable star. It wasn't a supernova. So it wasn't any of the things that TESS is actually designed to do. It was a comet. Of course it was, because why not? <laughs> because, a comet? Yeah, so this was a comet. We actually did know. It didn't, TESS didn't discover it. We did know it was there. Um, so we looked for it, basically, in the test data. And this was TESS during commissioning. In fact, it was just before it started um, its science mission on the 25th of July. And so the had a look and so to see what was going on and what, how the image would look if we looked at a comet with Tess. Give it a shot. I mean, try it out, see how it goes. Yeah, and we'll put a link to the to the result because the video that they made of stacking kind of the images that they took is just fascinating. Yeah, you sent me comet. you sent me this video in the in the lead up to to us recording the show this morning, and it is quite extraordinary. I mean, there's this series of images. You can see the comet going across the sky, but there's. You know, at first glance, like, okay, yep, that's the comet. And then you look into it more deeply, and there's just so much in this series of images. You can see the tail of the comet sweeping around, changing direction as it as it moves through, you know, around through the solar wind, and the solar wind sort of pushing the tail off behind it. So you can see that changing direction. You can see... Um, you know, in the in the sequence of images, you can see asteroids just moving across in the across the background of stars. These tiny little light dots that are shifting across. You can see that. Just so much stuff. You can, there's a couple of variable stars yes, in there that yeah. you can see. So the stars themselves don't move. So you can see it really highlights the the motion of the comet or the asteroids that you're seeing. Uh, what some of the stars you can really see the brightness changing yeah. over the course of the images. There's just so much going on That's in these images, exciting. and that was be like this isn't even the the science run. This isn't even the science. This is just the tuning up data. Let's have a look at a comet and see whether that works. And there's so much in that, already. and it gives you an appreciation of how much data processing needs to happen as well because you sort of see some of the stars go black for a little bit this this that's just the extraction and the processing that we have to do to the data to to get all the really high precision uh, signal that we need out of it so, very very cool go really and have a look impressive. at it we'll, we've really got the link impressive. in the show notes you really should check that one out so three planets three exoplanets yeah talk us through it what have we found so these were released um announcements were released for these over not just in this month we have saw the first two were um, announced at the end of last year but i thought it worth talking about the first three altogether because they're kind of kind of nice that's a milestone so the first one was in september uh, last year and uh, it was uh, found actually in a really interesting um, system so this is an exoplanet that was found around a star that we already knew had an exoplanet going around it right okay but this is another exoplanet so we knew about one already in the system and we added a new one right and so the one that we'd already found i'm assuming was probably the bigger of the two it was but it's not quite the sort of system that you might expect okay so the star is called pi mensae and uh, we knew that it had this super super jupiter sized planet going around it and this was detected using radial velocity techniques so it's huge um, exoplanet and it's got a period of something like six years right okay and it's you know it's on, it's on a pretty long orbit which means it's reasonably far away from its host star now the planet that they found is almost the polar opposite of the one that, that was already there so small so it's small. and close it's a super earth size so maybe twice the size of earth something like that and it's got a period of only six days. Six days. Six days, which means it's That's whipping really around close. the star. Right? Wow! Hurtling around it. Hang on, just for speed. just for reference, Mercury's orbit is eighty-eight days. Eighty-eight days. So it's really close. You're really, really close. Wow! But it's twice the size of Earth. Yeah. Wow! Amazing. And so, 
really interesting system. Um, and we've got to look at it and start to think, well, how is this system put together? What's going on? Yeah, the star itself is not too dissimilar from our sun. It's only a little bit younger than, than our own sun. And um, But what's really crazy is that this uh, the big planet, the super Jupiter, if you like, has a really eccentric orbit. And that means it's not going around in a nice, tidy, organized circle like most of our planets in the solar system. It's on a big ellipse. It's on a big ellipse, almost like a comet. It's, it's the eccentricity is about 0.6, which wow. is huge. That is big. That, so that means that sometimes it's much closer and sometimes it's much further away than the average. It's on this big, stretched out yeah, ellipse. Yeah, crazy planet. And actually it moves into the habitable zone of the star from time to time. So really, really interesting on, on its own. And it's, a, and it's an interesting system. But then when you think about the orbital dynamics, that well, we think that would mean that if you've got this big planet coming into quite close to the host star, how on earth do you have little planets sitting in there? The gravity from this super Jupiter should totally disrupt any sort of interior planets and basically either kick them into the sun, into the star, and they'll explode and burn up, or kick them out into the outer, you know, into the interstellar Fling medium. Fling them and just out into the outer void. space, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, how, that's really weird. How do you have a stable orbit with you've got that big giant? Coming in to disturb you. That's a really good question. I'm assuming we don't have an answer to that yet. No, we don't. Right. But that's what makes it so exciting and so interesting. Particularly as, like, this is the first one. Like, how yeah. cool is that? If, if the first planet had to, to be discovered in the test data had been, yep, it's a planet, just as we thought. But instead, it's, yeah, it's a planet. But hang on. <laughs> just Everyone just pause for a second. Just look at this system. This is nuts then that bodes well for the future, right? There is so much stuff to work on. And what's so exciting is this is a bright star. In fact, you can see it with the naked eye if you go into a dark place. And obviously in the Southern Hemisphere, that's where Tess has been working. And you know where to look. Yep. Um, And it's not very far away. Mm. It's only about 60 light years away. She sounds a long, long way. It is a long way. I'm just doing the mental calculations and I've got nothing. Give me me some, some sense of like... How far away is that? What's the closest star to us other than the sun? Uh, so that's about three light years away. Right. Okay. So it's within sort of the, the, the closer bunch of stars to us. It's not yeah, too far it's away. It's not very far. Yeah, okay. And that means we can get really good quality data on it. We can follow up this observation for a long period of time um, and just really drill down and get some more data out of it. Cool. So that's the first one. What was number two? Did, did number two sort of, I'm just a planet. I'm, I'm nothing special. There's no such thing Sorry. as a boring exoplanet is something I'm thinking is yeah, probably good. true. Good. Okay, so number two. Number two. Number two is around a, is, oh, the object is called LHS 3844. Beautiful name. Yeah, the planet's B, as we stick a B on the end of it. That's sure. so the star's name is. Remembering because we don't do A's. No. For no apparent reason. I haven't worked out why we don't do A's. <laughs> well done, astronomy. Okay, so planet B. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first one. Yep. So this is um, was discovered on the 20th of September. So again... Uh, Very early uh, on. Yeah, early on in the mission. Now, if you thought that the other planet was kind of a bit quick mm. going around in six mm. days, this one's going to blow your mind. Go on. It goes around in 11 hours. What? That's just... How? Okay. Look, so I, how big's the star? How, it's actually quite a little star. Right. So it's a, what we call an M dwarf, which means it's quite small, quite cool, probably on the verge of even being allowed to be a star. Barely a star at all. Yeah. 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 Uh, so but it's, bright enough to see something going around it. So, yes, okay. Yes, yeah. It's a star. It is. Yeah. It is fusing. I mean, but we can't be too mean to it. it 11 is, hours? Yeah. 11 hours. How? Like that's... 
next door. Like you could reach out and touch that. Yeah. That's so crazy. If you lived on this exoplanet, a year, a whole year would take you less than, you know, a day here on Earth. That's a roller coaster ride around that star. Imagine that's how nuts. old you would be. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's not quite what I was thinking. I was thinking more like you've just been burnt to death, but sure. Well, yeah. yeah, but yeah. I'm just thinking, wake up every morning, have a piece of birthday cake. Well, don't even have to before wait for you the morning. To, before I mean, you go to bed one, at night, have another piece of birthday cake. One for dinner, cake. one for breakfast. Just constant birthday party. I like it. I like yeah. it. But that, wow. Yeah, but yeah, obviously this is really, really close to its host star. So it's not the most fantastic place to live. No, we're not going to be looking at this one for extraterrestrial life. I Your don't think. candles will self-ignite. <laughs> <laughs> Your candles and everything else around you will be on fire constantly. Yeah, so it's yeah. probably a lava world. Mm. They're calling it a hot earth. Well, that's an understatement. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Um, so, well, okay, it's it's not... Not the most, but it's interesting. It's interesting that you can get... This is one of the um, closest exoplanets orbiting its host star that we've ever found. So super, super interesting. So, okay, the first two have been really kind of interesting. I'm holding my breath for the third one. It's either going to be really dull or this is a planet that's made out of Stilton cheese and we know it because... like, what? Tell me, tell me about Planet 3. Well, you know it's going to be the second case. Not, not so much about the cheese, but the fact that it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, okay. So this is the third one is, was announced at the um, American Astronomical Society meeting um, on the 7th of Jam. So super, super news. And this is why I thought this is a great time to talk about these early discoveries. Yep. Um, so it's called HD 21749B. B. Right. <laughs> and it is one of the coolest planets that we've found around a star, which is the brightness that this host star Now, is. when you say coolest, you're not talking temperature, you're talking awesomeness here. Well, I'm talking both, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay, so it's a um, mini Neptune is one of the ways we can describe this. So similar to Uranus or Neptune in our solar system, it's only three times the size of Earth, but it's much, much more massive. Right. So I think it's one of these kind of icy gas giants that we have. What's really interesting about it is that it doesn't seem to be quite like Uranus and Neptune in our solar system and that it seems to be much, much denser. Hmm. So our ones are big, fluffy puffballs, basically. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're gas giants. Yeah. They're, they're, not, they're not on the same scale as Jupiter and Saturn, but they're big yeah. and they're gaseous. They're not solid. They're not made of rock. Yeah, so this one's not solid either, but it's kind of somewhere in between those things. Mm. So maybe kind of quite a dense gas or like maybe a, more like water. I'm thinking a slushy. Yeah. Like maybe <laughs> not good, completely good icy one. like a slushy, but it's a slushy planet. Yeah. You can have that one, uh, Astronomy World. You can have that for free. Cool. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's um, on an orbit of 36 days. Okay, that's pretty quick. It's pretty quick. Now, you'll notice actually... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Thinking this one through. This is cold. It's a cold planet. Yeah? Yeah. 36 days, which is, means it's really close. Yeah. So what does that How's tell that you about work? the star? Star must be really cool. Star is really, really cool. So ah. it's it's a, a dwarf. So it's not it's a bit warmer than the one we just mentioned, uh, but it is it is a small, cool star. So the star itself is, has a surface temperature of only <laughs> 4,500 degrees Kelvin. It's kind of the same. Only. Whereas our sun has a surface temperature of what about 6,000? 6,000. 6, 6, yeah, 6, slightly more. Yeah. yeah. So that makes it a lot cooler, which means that the um, heat output, the light output is, um, well, the light output's the most important. That's much, much less. Right. So you can have a slushy planet with an orbit of 36 days, which is pretty quick, um, but it's still not 
really, really super, super stupidly hot because the star itself is quite yeah. cool. So we think the equilibrium temperature might be around 150 degrees Celsius, which is hot. That's, that's hot, but, but there are hotter places. Yeah, but it's cool for one of these types of planets. If yeah, that's gotcha. yeah, gotcha. Yeah, and so, yeah, very, very exciting. Um, something we hadn't really seen before. And it's great to have these big gaseous planets that are cooler because we know a reasonable amount about hot Jupiters, say. Right. So these are the big planets, big and gassy, that are very close to their host star, and some of them are thousands of degrees. And so we've been able to study those quite a bit because we, we know of quite a few examples. And these are the ones that we want to try and work out what their atmospheric composition is. And we have some that we do have some, some really good data on that. So this is an example of one of those cooler examples. Um, the slushy yes, Neptunes. Yeah, end of that sort of spectrum. And so for the first time we can start to look at, well, what are they composed of? Is it different or is it the same as the hotter ones? Cool. So the first three exoplanets, hot off the presses from TESS, are all in their own individual ways really quite awesome. Yeah, yeah, they are. And you'll notice something about all three of them. We, they, we know All of them were very, very quick orbits. Yeah. So we're not looking for planets that go around every six years, every 10 years. And that's the nature of TESS. Because remember that we said that each sector that TESS is looking at, you only get 27 days or so right, of, of course, data. Yeah, yeah. So it's very difficult. You want to, with an exoplanet, you want to see the dip in the light that you get when a, the exoplanet goes in front of the host yeah, star. The transit. The transit. You want to see that more than once if you're going to work out how long it takes for that planet to go around. Right. And that's you, only going to happen if it's orbiting with a period less than 27 days. Yeah. And in the case, well, we have some stars that have overlaps in terms of the, the observed. Some, some of them we will see for about a year, but most of them we're only going to see for 27 days at a time. Right. So we're really talking things which are within and significantly within the Earth's own orbit orbital period you know within a year considerably less ideally yeah but the wonderful thing is that again these are bright stars so we can follow them up and actually in the case of that third planet that we talked about um, they were able to go back and find some historic data from another telescope on the ground and look at that and see if they saw the, the planet as well which they had but they weren't sure if it was that it was kind of a we're not 100% sure that we're seeing what we think we're seeing, so we'll be cautious about it. Um, but the combined sets of those two data they were able to put together and really get an interesting story about the star and get a lot of information about it. So that was obviously a conscious decision when TESS was, was designed and set up from the very beginning, was we're only going to be really looking for these quite short orbital period uh, exoplanets, missing out on finding new uh, very long period, you know, anything from sort of, you know, Earth's orbit outwards, which in our solar system is Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. Is there anything at the moment which is which is still looking for those much larger orbit planets, or is it that just not really on the radar at the moment? What's the situation there? Um, yeah, we are looking for those longer things using sort of longer projects, longer ground-based projects. Um, and so doing really long-scale surveys, there's lots of examples, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, for example. Um, the, all sky surveys will pick up some of those objects. But what we, when we designed tests, we really wanted to capitalize and get the most out of it that we could, especially looking for planets that might be habitable. 
And we knew that there were going to be these quite short observation periods. So if you think about what, if you're going to find a planet that's going on a short, shorter orbit, if you want to make that planet habitable, then you need to look at cooler stars. So Tessa is actually designed to look at the stars that are much, much cooler than the sun. Um, your K's, M, dwarfs, all these ones that we mentioned before. Um, it's really tailored to be looking at those types of stars. because And it's much easier. You don't have to wait around for years and years and years, yeah. right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also for the other part of, of Tessa's mission, which is looking at variable stars as well, that those are going to be on, ti- on much shorter timescales than, than months and years and decades. That's a much shorter time frame. And when you're designing any kind of scientific experiment, then you've got to be choosy. You can't do everything. You know, no. you can't have the decades long and the, you know, minutes, hours, days, weeks and months short uh, mission all in the same thing at once to the right kind of precision. So Tess is inherently a much shorter time frame device. Yeah. And we learned so much from Kepler that is being implemented by the Tess mission. So we knew from Kepler that there would be lots of exoplanets going around these these cooler stars. And so we, we have a reasonable idea of how many we're actually expecting to find. So Tess's real goal is to find somewhere on the order of 1,500 exoplanets. Most people would agree, I think, that we're probably going to find more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're quite quite good at finding exoplanets now. Um, and the real goal is to find about 300 that are Earth-sized, maybe 50 that are Earth-sized in the habitable zone. Those cool. are our objectives, if yeah. you like. Okay. All right. Well, we're off to a very good start. And by we, I'm including myself in the astronomical community as ever. Um before we, we finish this episode, though, there is there's something else, isn't there? Because you have actually been checking out in your own research some of the data that's come down off TESS. You're actually getting your hands dirty as we speak. So what have, what have you been looking at? Yeah, so of course, um, TESS's data release that happened in December was really useful for me as well. We had, um, in our program, we had about five stars that we knew were coming down uh, in the first two sectors of data. That These are stars that we've been looking at for many, many years, and we're really interested in them. So I'm working my way through those stars at the moment. And so what makes these stars excited. interesting to you? What are you looking for? So these are my Gamador stars, and what we're looking for. Your what? Your Gamador? Mine, my Gamador stars. They're all mine. <laughs> <laughs> They're mine. mine. They're mine. They'll all be called Emily. Yeah. So these are types of variable stars um, that I study. It's kind of a smaller category of variable stars but with huge interest and huge potential to do some really interesting physics with them so they're a little bit hotter than the sun and they pulsate so they have the surface of the star has pulsations running through it and these pulsations originate from very very deep within the stellar interior and that's so useful because we can't go stick you know, thermometers and probes into stars to see what's going on inside of them. All we ever see is the surface and all the information we get is from the surface of these stars. And so we have to use things that happen on the surface to work out actually, you know, how big is the core of a star? Is the core rotating uh, inside a star? Is it rotating at the same speed as the surface of the star is rotating? That's a really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, but you know, my, my natural inclination would be surely it's got to, but of course it doesn't have to, does it? It no. could be doing all sorts of interesting stuff, which would be doing some really interesting stirring activity inside <laughs> the star itself, one yeah, would think. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I use these stars to work out, to look at the pulsations, work out what the pulsations are doing, and from that we can start to 
understand what's going on in the very, very deep layers of the star. Very cool. You showed me a graph, which I'm just looking up on your on your whiteboard here in your office, uh, of some of the data that you've been looking at already. And you know, when I when I naively think of of the concept of a variable star, I imagine something which is just sort of pulsing. You know, gets brighter, gets dimmer, gets brighter, gets dimmer. But this is much more complex than that. This this is not just a it goes up, it goes down. This is a it goes up a bit, goes down a bit, and then up again and down. And it's really quite low this time, and then up a bit, and it's really quite complex. There's a lot of stuff in here. Yeah, and this is a wonderful star. So this is a star that I'm working on as part of a huge team. So um, there's a whole big big group of us, and uh, myself and my PhD student were sort of allocated this star. Yeah, you, you you look at this. This one. one's yours. Yep, and we'll put all the information that we get from everybody who's individually working together into um, the first what we call the first light paper. So this is kind of understanding for the first time what TESS is going to be able to do with all the different types of stars that we're interested so in. So first light being the term for the, 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 the literally the first bit of light that gets into the device. Let's have a look and see what came out of that. So maybe not the first photons specifically, but the first data release yeah, is what yeah, you're talking about. That's yeah. exactly right. And we can use that to sort of say, well, what can we project that we're going to be able to do over the next few years with the test data? So we, we were looking at the star. It's a really exciting example because it's actually a star that I didn't know was a Gamma Dorada star. In fact, nobody knew okay. it was a Gamma Dorada star. What's a Gamma Dorada star? What, what does that mean? So that's the, the type of variable that I'm looking at. And what we thought this particular star was up until Tess looked at it was we thought it probably was a Cepheid. Now, Cepheid is another type of variable star. It's probably the classic type. It is one that you mentioned before where uh, the surface gets brighter and then dimmer and brighter and dimmer. And usually in a Cepheid, you might have one. If you're very lucky, you'll have two periods that go on. They're very, very classic um, And they're very objects. regular, aren't they? Very, yeah. very regular. Yeah. So the light curves just look like going up, going down, going up, going down. And you just get that repeated. So we thought that this was a Cepheid. Well, in the 60s, when people started first looking at the star, um, that's what it was kind of classified as. Nobody knew what a Gamma Dorada star was in the 60s. We only knew about them in the 90s. So, that, that's, you know, but they even in the 60s, they thought, not sure. It's not really behaving like we would think it is. But, you know, there's a lot of stars in the sky, so we didn't really look at it again. Sure, there's a, there's a lot of choice. Yeah. <laughs> Until recently. And then when we got this test data, you can instantly see you don't get this very periodic up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. You sort of get, as you say, going up, down. Oh, it's going down a bit. Oh, no, it's going to go down a bit more. Oh, no, it's going to go up. No, 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 down, down, down. There's a lot of things competing in this light curve. Yeah. yeah. And what that means is that you don't have just one pulsation going through the star. You've got... Lots. 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 And we're still working on exactly how many. We think there's at least tens, maybe even a hundred different pulsations going through and, this and star. Do you know, I mean, what kind of dynamics could be causing that? Or is it just that this is a really complicated structure and there's weird stuff going on? Is that what you're trying to find out? Yeah, exactly. Well, we think that probably most Gamma Dorada stars do have lots of pulsations going through them. How many is, we're still trying to understand that. But um, what's, so this is effectively going to be a discovery of a brand new Gamma Dorada star. So we're going to take our number of known Gamma Dorada stars from maybe kind of 70 to 71, which is, it doesn't sound all that exciting when you say it that way. But for me, that's, that's super exciting. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this one's yours and we'll call it Emily. <laughs> Emily. 
Well, that's where we've got to wrap it up for another week of Syzygy. Look, we know we've been quiet for a while, but we're going to get back into the normal rhythm. A bit like a Cepheid variable, we're going to get back into that, that constant rhythm, uh, or as constant as we can make it anyway, roughly every week. We'll see how we go. But you can be pretty sure that there's going to be lots of more Syzygy goodness coming your way. Joining me as ever on the microphone has been Emily Brunsden. Emily, it's, it's good to be back in 2019. It's so exciting. And we've got so much new science to talk about. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a very, very good year. So listen, if you enjoy the show, you really should check us out on the various social medias. Emily, how do people find us on social media? So Where are we? We're, we're everywhere. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. The universe is big and so is Syzygy. <laughs> so you can catch us up on Twitter. Yes. And you're 160 on characters or less. 160. Isn't it 230 now? 240? I don't know. It's a number <laughs> of characters. It's a number of characters. And we are at Pod. On Twitter, you can also check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash SyzygyPod. Generally, if you're, if you're not sure, just search us for SyzygyPod. We're yeah. probably out there somewhere. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. That's right. In, you case you, in case you haven't figured that one out yet. Now, coming back into the new year, uh, if you enjoy listening to us and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I want as much Syzygy as humanly possible. There are a couple of ways that you can help us out. First of all, tell as many people as possible. We have a reasonably, you know, reasonably good-sized audience for the show, but we would love it to be bigger. We want to reach as many people around the world who are astronomy mad as we are. So tell your friends, tell your family, leave us a review on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify Podcasts, wherever you can leave us a review. Throw us some stars. Tell the world how much you enjoy the show, because that really helps. It helps us to rise up through the noise of the podcast world. There are a few of them out there, and we want to get to the top. The other way that you can help us is, if you're really, really keen, you can go to patreon.com slash Pod, And that's where you can become a supporter of the show. You can sign up to throw a dollar, a pound at us every time we release an episode. Um, you can throw more at us if you really want to. You can throw enough so that we can fly down to South America to see the eclipse in 20, what, 2020, 2022, something like that. And if you become a Patreon of the show, we'll be eternally grateful. That would be a really awesome thing. But if you don't want to go that far, just spread the word. That's all we ask. Look, that's going to have to be all for this week. So catch us again next week in about a week's time for another episode of Syzygy. We'll be talking more astronomical nonsense. Until then, Emily, catch you later. later. Bye. Now, this is episode 28. 28. It is true. It's 28. What were we like on episode 11 or something? Yeah, well, that's how it works. It's a little bit like children. Suddenly they grow up. Apparently I've got a 13-year-old and, I, you know, I don't know. Happen? I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, she's about three inches high <laughs> and, you know, still being bottle-fed. So I don't, you know, I don't know how that works. <laughs>